Welcome to the Picture Books to Gang podcast. I'm Allie. I'm Corey. I'm Kelly, and we are the Picture Books to Gang. We invite you to join us here every other week while we discuss amazing books and issues in children's literature, as well as early literacy, education, and parenting as it relates to reading. We can't wait to dig in deep and get nerdy about picture books with you. Hey folks, Future Corey again here, and we have another jam-packed long episode because we actually got to interview one of my favorite humans in the whole world, and we talked about a whole lot of things. So in summation, sorry, not sorry, but enjoy this super long episode. Bye. Hello, and welcome back to the Picture Bookster Gang podcast. This week, we want to talk about gender representation in children's literature, and we have a very special guest joining us to chat about it. So right off the top, before we introduce them, we are going to do a little housekeeping and remind everyone of our pronouns. So I am Allie, and my pronouns are she, her, and I am joined by my fabulous co-hosts, Kelly and Corey. Hello, my name is Corey and my pronouns are she or they, either is fine. And I am super jazzed to talk about this because I recently got a master's degree in gender and cultural studies and one of my biggest passions is talking about gender and gender identity in relation to early education. Hi, hi, my name is Kelly and my pronouns are she, her, and I get the privilege of introducing our extra special guest we have joining us this week, Corey's spouse and the other half of the tiny activists, Lee! Yay! Yay! Hi Lee, it's so exciting to have you on with us today to talk about gender representation in Kidlet. So let's start off and perhaps you can tell us a bit about yourself. Hello. My name is Lee and my pronouns are they, them. Um, I am Corey's spouse and have been very lucky to have her in my life for six years. And now she has these two other folks to have shenanigans with, which is great. And I get to spend time with them as well. I'm very lucky that you uh, have invited me to the podcast. Um, Mostly for the tiny activist, I handle like behind the scenes, um, back end technical stuff and doing some design work on the curriculum that Corey creates. So um, other than that, uh, I work for a behavioral health services um, organization um, and I am also building a house with Corey right now. We're on this homesteading project and uh, it's a trip. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a lot to it. Um, but uh, my favorite chicken wing flavor is plain because a basic. Uh, if I could have a superpower, it would be flying, obviously. And then my worst experience with a sandwich. I got a sandwich one time and I was wicked excited about it because I walked like a half an hour to get it. And then uh, I spilled uh, sparkling water on it and it got terribly soggy and tasted like raspberry so i cried <laughs> and then i just tore the meat out of it and, and ate it like that went for it Excellent. <laughs> so we wanted to bring lee on to join us in this discussion because it's something that both of us are really passionate about and have frequent discussions um, about as we manage the tiny activist the pint-sized professor and we just see so many kids' books that come across uh, our desk. 
I'm so excited that Lee's joining us. Um, okay, so let's start by digging a little bit deeper into Lee and their background, and then we can move on past that after and dig deeper into the topic at hand. So we've all been doing a great deal of research for this one. I think it's I think it's going to be an interesting conversation. So Lee, a couple of quick questions so our listeners can get to know you better. Get cozy over here. So right off the bat, how did you see gender stereotypes playing out in your time as an educator? Yeah, so I saw a fair amount of what I think a lot of educators can uh, say is a similar experience in that um, there were a lot of lines that were kind of invisibly there that children would not cross or if they did, they would police each other uh, about what their like perceived you know, um, wrong move was. Uh, boys would be, you know, afraid to join activities that weren't stereotypically, that, that were seen as stereotypically feminine, like art choices. Even if they didn't like the sport that was going on, they wanted to be a part of that group and they didn't want to stay downstairs with all the girls. Um, so kids would also say off the cuff gendered stuff, exactly what you'd expect if they had heard that all their lives and had been, you know, raised in that uh, experience. Uh, the town that I was an educator in uh, is very heteronormative. I will say that there is a great queer community that Corey and I have gotten to know, but it's definitely not the norm. Um, so, just seeing, you know, the the validation from their peers of that they were doing the right thing and they were expressing themselves in the correct way, according to gender norms. Um, from an education perspective, I was a supervisor of um, several younger educators who were just starting out in their career. And you would see male teachers chastising boys for hugging or being affectionate, um, clearly because the male teachers were uncomfortable with that kind of expression which goes into, you know, adults assigning meaning where children are just hugging because they appreciate each other and their children. Absolutely. And yeah. they express themselves. And so it was very interesting because I think that that happened in situations where the educators were coming from communities that were socialized, that you could not show weakness and weakness meant femininity. They were also, you know, you could see in their faces that they had experienced this in their growing up and were then uncomfortable coming face to face to it with another child or, you know, somebody that they were supposed to be an authority for. They just really didn't know how to respond and that often led to them being like, why are you crying? Come on, don't be crying. Whereas, you know, uh, a tactic I would use is just uh, sit with them, be like, what's up? It sounds really tough, mm -hmm. you know? So um, there would sometimes just be choices that weren't very well thought out because they were based on those kinds of gut experiences that stay with us from childhood. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> one other thing is... Welcome to my TED Talk. Yes, indeed. Um, so uh, you came out as non-binary while you were working at that school, correct? Correct. And you are now no longer at that school. So maybe we can talk a little bit about what happened there. Yeah. Um, so I uh, was working at the school for five years before I 
kind of got comfortable with my own feelings about being non-binary. Um, and then I, you know, let my fellow teachers know, and they were all really great and accepting. Um, so I felt very comfortable. And uh, that did turn out to be a false assumption. But when I asked to, um, you know, talk to the, the children about this, um, the administration encouraged me to do that. And I made that choice. And there was some pretty uh, swift backlash from parents in the community um, in that they had heard what, you know, their second or third grader had said that I said. And so that got uh, twisted in some different ways and in ways that were um, highly uh, uncomfortable mm -hmm. for me as I had cultivated relationships uh, for like five years before this. It was my first job out of college and you know what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I've been working with children since I was you know just not a child myself <laughs> essentially since I was 16. Pretty soon after that the the kind of feedback you know there were like 245 families who really expressed some really lovely sentiments and and, and talked to me like I was a human being and that they you know understood and 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 felt like I was doing something good for their community and their children and in, in showing them that there was alternatives to the norm, but there were some, some families that were very upset with it, that it challenged a lot of their notions about what um, was appropriate to express to a child. A lot of it was, um, you know, it, they're too young to know about this. They're too young to hear about this because I think a lot of them went right for, for physical reasons. And like a lot of people do, and you know, watch any interview with uh, a cis person interviewing a trans person, and you're going to get questions about their body before you get any questions about what is it like to be a trans person. So I wasn't allowed to answer questions, and I was essentially given a gag rule um, that we were not going to mention the topic again. Um, so when I would get misgendered or they would use my birth name, I don't really call it a dead name because it's, it's like still a part of me. It's complicated as most people have complicated relationships with who they've been in the past, <laughs> whether sure. they're gender nonconforming or not. Um, so uh, I wasn't allowed to answer questions um, and I was actively demoted. Uh, well, I was going to be demoted but I decided to leave. Um, <laughs> I was uh, actively suppressed and, um, you know, would, would be told things that probably were not, I would not have wanted as uh, an administrator to tell another employee um, about what people said about me. Um, so that was just um, a lot <laughs> as I'm trying yeah. to now talk about it. Um, but uh, I eventually left because I was just so unhappy and, um, I, I didn't want the children to experience that person who was not me and I was not as, as, you know, as good of an educator because I wasn't able to fully be myself. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for sharing it. That's, that's a big, hard story. Oh, wow. It was heavy. Yeah. yeah. I'm a year out from it now. So I've had some time to process 
Yeah, we both really, you know, thought a lot about this and it also gave me a chance to sort of sit and take some time to decide if I was one of those people that would be able to stay and sort of try to create change from within the broken system. But it soon, you know, became abundantly clear uh, when I was asked basically every day when I was leaving and, you know, taken off email threads and completely forgotten about and not spoken to at all. So was given no direction, was given nothing to do. Um, You know, being shut out purposefully to make me leave and to be able to sort of sweep everything under the rug to sell a very specific narrative about why we both left. And of course we can go into much greater detail, uh, but (laughs) let's move on, you know, TLDR, unfair treatment. And now we uh, both pieced out and are doing much better. Yes. Wow. I'm glad that you guys got out of there, but like, what a terrible, like a school for kids. Those kids are there being educated by these people in this community. We're just very upsetting. I'm very sorry that happened to you both. Yeah. It's everything. (laughs) There's entirely not okay. Um, and it's not fair to the kids either. Like it's not fair what happened to you and it's not fair to the kids either. So that was one of the hardest parts about leaving. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Especially Um, because I, I had a family that, that really wanted to meet with me, um, because they thought my child, their their child, they thought their child could really benefit, um, from mentorship from me, even just talking about the situation and, and talking about their, um, any sort of gender identity questions that their child had. There was no definition, no, you know, diagnosis because like, you know, as an educator and a parent, you generally, you know, just let kids talk about how they feel and they can self-define and they can decide for themselves. There's no reason to add Mm -hmm. any sort of adult diagnosis onto things. Um, but I was explicitly forbidden from meeting with the family by the licensed social worker that worked with our school. So I was never able to follow up. And occasionally I do see that family around town and it, it breaks my heart every time I think about it because I wanted to be there for that child and I was not able to. Um, That's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of systemic failures and that's why we do what we do and why I'm so passionate about just trying my best to, to be out there in the world, being a a person, (laughs) you know, not that it's my job or that I'm that important in the grand scheme of things, but it's little things, right? Little ripples that, that create change. Mm -hmm. And for those of you listening in Canada who are thinking, well, this must be, you know, America and we are so much more evolved here. We're really, we're not. And actually a school that I was working at several years ago had a a sort of similar incident where we had this wonderful, um, uh, she was the secretary and she took care of a lot of the stuff in the school. She was amazing, but, and she was um, a lesbian and it was very like, she didn't hide it. And the community um, was really up in her face and parents were threatening her with physical violence. And uh, she eventually had to transfer because she was afraid to go to her car 
and this is in Canada. <laughs> so this isn't an American problem. This is an everybody problem. Yeah. Really. Everybody everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So Lee, do you have any advice for educators that are experiencing pushback from their administration or from the school community and how to build more inclusion into the culture of yeah. an education space? Yeah, I think first, number one is take care of you because as I learned, you're, you're not going to be there for yourself or for the people that you're working with um, if you're not being cared for or respected. Um, try to get outside opinions, if that means a therapist or, you know, um, someone that you see as a mentor. Um, you, you can also, you know, reach out to various organizations. There's probably, you know, local ones and also national ones that uh, can give you kind of that, that gut check because I experienced, you know, being gaslit, um, you know, being watched and I knew that the administration was talking about me and that I was, you know, essentially a liability. But know your rights. Um, what they did was against the law. What they did was illegal. Yeah. Explicitly. Mm -hmm. um but you can always find another job <laughs> yes. that you are not stuck there i was convinced very much by uh a narrative of, of family and i would highly encourage anyone um who is told that by administration or people in power that it's a family that is a red flag because it's a business first and foremost and you are an employee. And also, family doesn't always mean <laughs> that they're gonna take care of you. Family can here, mean a here. lot of different <laughs> things. So know your rights. You know, the, if there's no change after you are able to speak up for yourself, if there's, you know, no movement or development or conversation going on around it, then you and the school are both better off parting ways and you can find a better place to be yourself. You know, if your existence is so radical that you're being mistreated, you can change things much better somewhere else in an environment that will support you. You know, I know my current job is the right place for me because the protections for people were written into the paperwork. I do HR and I look over all of the interview questions that are asked of potential um, uh, people who are going to work for the company and into all of the documents. It is written in ask pronouns after going around the circle or, you know, on the call as the case may be, and share your pronouns. So that was something that happened in my first interview on the phone without even having to ask. It was just how they do things. And it doesn't have to be like a spectacle. It just has to be part of it. It has to be written into it. You know, that's, that's how you know that it's a place that you do want to be. So I think, you know, watching out for red flags, knowing your rights, knowing when it's time to cut ties, no matter how painful it is, you can do something better somewhere else and you'll probably be healthier and happier there. Good advice. Very good yes, advice. Thank you. Thank My you. spouse is very smart. It is true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have to be smart to keep up with you. <laughs> so let's now, I, I knew all of this information and now I'm glad that all of you guys know this information. 
And so let's really dive in now and get into our discussion specifically about gender representation in children's lit, which I want to open sort of by talking briefly about a 2017 report in Drawing the Future, which revealed that by the age of seven, children's aspirations appear to be shaped by gender-related stereotypes and who does certain jobs. So boys aspire for traditionally male-dominated professions and girls show a greater interest in nurturing and caring related roles than boys. So if you haven't seen the video, it's only a couple minutes long, we'll link it in the show notes, but the spoiler basically is there were 66 drawings of firefighters, surgeons, and pilots. 61 of them were drawn as men and five of them were drawn as women. Yeah, that's very telling. So I think that illustrates perfectly and makes it clear that children are forming their perceptions of gender and gender roles extremely early in their lives. And one of the greatest impacts that we can have on kids is to start with a basis of understanding that gender is a social construct. And we can work to make sure that their books, media, and toys, etc. have a much more balanced representation to help stop some of these biases from forming. And on that note, perhaps we should quickly step back and lay out some definitions before we get too much deeper into the topic. I'm going to toss out a few definitions, but this is just some vocabulary that we're going to be using throughout the episode. We have borrowed these definitions from Teaching Tolerance, and it will be linked in the show notes below. So we have gender, which refers to the social roles, behaviors, and traits that a society may assign to men, masculine, or to women, feminine. Then we have gender identity, which is the sense a person has of their own gender and how they relate to their gender. Then we have a stereotype, which is an overly simple picture or opinion of a person, group, or thing. And finally, we have social construction, which Kelly just referred to is an idea or definition created and enforced by a society. Thank you, Ale. So now we can further develop the idea about what is gender. It's a spectrum, first of all. But when we think about how it forms and how it develops, there are two different camps. It's very similar to the nature versus nurture personality development that we often talk about in kids. Some people are sort of in the gender nature camp where they see gender as biologically fixed. It's a very essentialist perspective. It's very related to assigned sex at birth and gender are the same thing. And now in the gender nurture camp, they perceive gender um, and gender identity as forming um, in a much more socialized way. People are socialized how to act, how to correctly act, and it's a repetition of what is seen on the media, in the home, in school, and that's how their gender is sort of developed. You can kind of see that repetition when you look at children's books where you know, research shows that mums reading a book will refer to gender neutral characters as male. Um, and that serves to support the underrepresentation of female characters in those books, a lot of books. Generalization. Using the casually used pronoun they can play a significant role when it comes to free choice of whether a person or animal is a he or a she. So it's just about how you want to open up this invitation, essentially, to try new things and to kind of, you know, 
switch it up. So that's something that I personally, you know, struggled with in the past. And, you know, it's something I catch myself still doing. And you say dude, or you say he, when you don't know all the time, that hasn't been my default in the past, but now I've become a researcher when I'm reading books and I'm a little more nimble with changing and creating some gender diversity where it might not normally exist in animal or car books. And actually in raising our monarch caterpillars, we now refer to them all as as they until they become a butterfly and reveal their gender to us. So, you know, there's ways to build it into your vocabulary on a daily basis. You can tell what gender monarch butterflies are? Yes, you can. They what? Have a, they have an extra spot on their wing if they're a male, which they kind of, it's kind of like the testes. You know a lot about butterflies. Like I do. Like so I much. Do. <laughs> <laughs> um, for us, we have female cats. So all cats in the entire world are female to us. <laughs> um, <laughs> but <laughs> now that I think about it, I do generally refer to animals as male. Although I have been trying to refer to them as, as they but I, I slip sometimes and except ladybugs because their lady is in the name and owls. They're just, I, I don't know why. We're you know, <laughs> dark about them. So, so, specific. <laughs> so I also wanted to sort of talk about how gender is performed in society and by the individual. And it's really performed by the way we talk about ourselves, as well as the repetition of the actions we perform. So for example, me, Corey, Coco, uh, perform my gender expression as feminine slash female, because when I was leaving the house and, you know, going to work, I would wear a lot of typically, you know, feminine gender clothing, like dresses and yoga pants. And an objective person could maybe misconstrue me as much more feminine than I personally feel inside because of these wardrobe choices that society has put um, specific meanings towards when really I just want to wear extremely comfortable clothing, you know, like soft bags is often how I refer to it as like, how can I wear a nightgown professionally, you know? So, Goal. but there's <laughs> absolutely <laughs> goals. Yeah. Well, I mean, in a post pandemic world, you may get to wear your nightgown professionally because does anybody wear anything else these days? Really? No. No? It's still just yoga pants. Pants. <laughs> I wear a suit and tie every day. Do you actually? Are they, are they joking? No, that's yes. a lie. <laughs> I can't tell. Everybody's always joshing me. Okay. Um, where was I? Um, so there are um, undeniably prevalent stereotypes in our North American Eurocentric culture. So boys are expected to be energetic, mathematically inclined, rough and destructive. And all of these lead into toxic masculinity, which is discouraging boys from showing emotion and nurturing qualities. Then on the other side of this, we have girls are expected to be quiet, like pink, wear fancy dresses, like princesses, etc. Not be good at math. Yeah. And there are definitely consequences for reaching outside of those predefined boxes. And kids are taught to put each other into these categories early, early, early in their lives. And kids definitely like to categorize things, which is why through the consumption of media that parents have around their kids, they very, very quickly absorb these ideas and that messaging that 
pink is a girl color and dinosaurs are for boys and dolls are for girls and so on and so forth, which is all this reinforcement of this extremely black and white, one or the other, no in-between idea of the gendered binary, which historically isn't accurate. It's a social construct that has truly only become the norm through colonization in the last couple hundred years. Yeah, totally. Pink was a boy's color. In the 1920s, it was all the rage Mm -hmm. for boys. All the rage. Anyway, they also used to dress children the same. There was no differentiation until they were about five. So Mm -hmm. history majors, we know. We've seen it in the books, of course. (laughs) I wish I could time travel. Um, But overall in books, it seems much more acceptable to have girls breaking stereotypes than boys. And even in dramatic play, it's generally more accepted that girls take on masculine roles rather than boys taking on traditionally feminine roles like wearing dresses, etc. So when you see a girl challenging gender norms, it might not be seen as a conflict. Um, you know, they might just say, oh, that's a tomboy. Um, and often they get slipped in as background characters, which might appear you know, in the general landscape of children's books. Whereas when a boy is challenging the binary and wearing a dress to school, it's seen as a problem and it's the central focus of the book rather than being about any other plot point that there could be in that child's life, all yeah. their experiences. So when we're talking about, you know, books where the central theme of the story is this child who is gender expansive in some way and is breaking gender norms, it's more often, as Lee said, that you're going to see a boy playing with a doll or wearing a dress, then you're going to see the central theme being a girl who likes trucks. Um, And there's a library of San Francisco, uh, the public library of San Francisco panel discussion that's on YouTube, and we'll link it in the show notes. It's about breaking the binary, and Alex Gino speaks at it. They wrote um, the books George and Rick, middle, middle grade books. And they talked about how it's more socially acceptable, and I'm saying that in air quotes, um, for girls to reach up the social ladder and want to be a boy, where it is far less accessible, acceptable for a boy to want to reach down the ladder and want to be a girl. So that's why there's so much more conflict seen with boys that want to wear a dress. And that's why you're seeing more books out in the universe um, that are explicitly about boys who want to wear a dress than there is books uh, with the central theme of like a girl kind of falls into this tomboy category, which is also a word I just absolutely hate. I don't like that term at all, but that's another topic. Definitely in my own experiences teaching music in kindergarten, where the kids are sometimes only three years old when they're starting, they have very rigid ideas already about what they should and shouldn't be doing. And boys are especially reluctant to quote unquote, reach down, as you say. So um, actually, one of the activities I do regularly, and I've been doing this since I started when I teach music, drama, and dance, is it's like a free-form movement where I will play the piano and call it a role like construction worker or astronaut. And I change the melody and the tempo and the role every eight or 16 bars. But the reason I do this is so that kids get this brief opportunity to play out any role, any scenario without worrying about how they might look because everybody else is doing exactly the same thing for that you know, brief moment. So it's like a safe space to experiment. And I have done this with literally thousands of students over the last several years. And every single time I introduce this activity, I get the same reaction when I call out ballerina. Mm -hmm. And the boys will mostly just stop dead in their tracks. And they make 
sometimes a really great big stink because they cannot be seen playing a ballerina. It is the most traditionally feminine role that I do call out in this game usually. It is always met with reluctance and like straight up fear. And sometimes the boys will only agree to do it if I promise not to tell their fathers about it, which is this, I've had to do this multiple times to promise not to tell their fathers that they were acting like a ballerina. And, and every single time it's like, of course I'm not gonna tell your father. Like, it's just very heartbreaking, really. Totally. I've experienced that as well in my education time with older children also where parents would kind of come and check with me whether their child were performing the correct activities because mm -hmm. they were able to choose. Um, we would have like four or five choices that they could choose from and they would be like, but did they go up and play with the boys? You know, did they go run around? So what I would do is I would actually, every time we had like an activity that was a, like a sports competition, like Olympics or something like that, I would require that all the teams make a poster and do an art project before they could start with the physical activity. And so that actually got a lot of creativity where, you know, we would have the boys getting really into it because they were like, yeah, this is my team. So there were ways to kind of like toy yes. with it. And I would yes. also, since I had older kids, I would actively tell them, you know, what we were just talking about, about blue being a girl's color. I would be real with them be like, hey, this is not a thing. So let's talk real about it. Let's sit down and, you know, talk about what's actually happening here. So, you know, but what we see is peer culture is really a central force in shaping and regulating the gender, gender performance, and particularly masculinity, which, you know, as I mentioned at the top of the show, you know, I've seen become particularly toxic, toughness, differentiating and marking prestige. Like the worst thing that a boy can be called is a girl. And you see it in books, toys, and media that's marketed to boys. You know, there's a lot less imaginative play and more STEM. There's less feelings and more like just, you know, building blocks and, and kind of architecture, if anything, and, and a lot less nurturing. Um, it's about control, you see a lot of the time. And, you know, it's right from the get-go. It starts in toddlerhood, where there's a lack of dolls and emotional learning built into books geared to boys. Nola Alloway, who's an Australian researcher, asserts that it's too late to begin thinking about issues of gender. You're so right, so rightly. So the malleability of gender identities and these subjectivities in the early childhood years up to sort of about age four to five points to an opportune time to begin working with children in exploring, questioning, problematizing the taken for granted restrictive notions of gender that we see, that we see a lot in the media. And children at the age of four or five are still so far from having a fixed notion of what you know, gender performance means socially, that even if they have started doing some categorizing, you still have time to help shape a more expansive and inclusive view of gender identity as a spectrum with them at this age. So essentially, I'm trying not to go too far off the deep end with uh, my, my big words, but if we teach children young, they're more likely to be open and accepting of themselves as well as others, which can really help on the policing that we have spoken about before. Radicalize the children. 
<laughs> which is, yes. you know, it's so important. And like, uh, I really believe that we need to, as an educational, uh, like a refocus that acknowledges and analyzes and challenges these stereotypical assumptions about gender. Um, I see this is critical for educators to provide students with the necessary framework for exploring, deconstructing, and rebuilding the meanings they have for their own self-expression. So like I mentioned before with the activity that I, I did where I gave them the safe space to experiment, there are lots of different ways that you can do that at home or in the classroom. You can read books that um, explore these ideas, but you can also you know, work that into the play. So let's say you're having, you know, a building center. You can add tiny dolls to that building center. You can add small animals. And then that building activity also becomes dramatic play where they are voicing characters and showing empathy. So it's about reframing the way we think about how we set up any classroom, not just the books. And it, there is no one size fits all approach. Like just you know, like we do for teaching styles every day in the classroom, it's time that we as as a community of educators and parents need to start thinking more deeply about this and putting it into practice in our homes and in the classroom. Yeah. And, and on that exact note, like, uh, you know, in the home as a parent, we have the power to make sure that we're reaching across the aisles, so to speak, the aisles of the store and buying items that are outside the quote unquote acceptable range for your child's assigned sex at birth. Um, this is in everything from buying clothes to toys to books. It's making sure that your boy reads books about sparkly unicorns and has strong female role models, as well as giving him books that give him an understanding that not every human fits into just one category or one box or another. Um, and it's also making sure that your girls know that there are men that feel emotions, which seems radical, um, and that looks aren't everything. And they're allowed to like bugs and they're allowed to like dinosaurs. I certainly do. I mean, who doesn't like some bugs and dinosaurs? Because, come on. Preach. I don't like bugs. <laughs> sorry i want to be part of the cool kids but i don't like bugs <laughs> you did raise um, one caterpillar i did the caterpillar was okay <laughs> um so some books that address gender stereotyping for kids are lucia the luciadora annie's plaid shirt interstellar cinderella julian is a mermaid mary wears what she wants sparkle boy dressed like a girl, Jacob's new dress. There's definitely a few of them at least out there, but something to take note of is that they are largely written by cisgendered white women or parents of gender expansive children, with the exception of Mary Wears What She Wants, which is written by a cisgendered white man. So there, there are actually very few own voices titles in this category. Yeah, it's also a bit of a theme with these books in particular. They're more about being faced with a challenge and how to overcome it. And that challenge being their identity versus another piece of who they are and, you know, how to overcome it and be who you are rather than stories that include kids who are challenging stereotypes, but it's just part of them living their life, you know, focusing yeah. on that. Yeah, that's a 
it's very important to note that. I think there's still such a long way to go, unfortunately, to get to a place where it is more commonplace that we have no mention of a character moving against the grain of gender stereotypes and they're just existing and having fun and being a boy who wears a tutu or a girl who loves bugs. Like, And I mean, there is certainly is a few. Um, Hank's Big Day, a story about a bug. It's about a girl who loves a bug um, and has an adventures with them and um then there's the book want to play trucks that one's kind of an outlier because it does challenge things but you know you think the story's setting up that they're going to challenge that one boy wants to play with a doll but the reality is the issue is the one boy is playing with a truck the other boy is playing with a doll and they're just worried it won't fit together it's not that the challenge is (laughs) he's playing with a doll so it's kind of interesting like as a parent you're reading it and you're you're set up for something that it actually doesn't happen. So that one's nice. I like that book. That's interesting, though. It kind of yeah. plays with your expectations and mm-hmm. subverts them. I, I appreciate that. So you know how I love to dish about a little picture book controversy. And there are a few other books that people have been upset over recently on the gram. And I think we got to talk about them, even if this might get some people heated up in the comments over on our Instagram page. It's coming. Here we go. All right, let's do this. (laughs) Pink is for boys. I have feelings. I really like this book, which I don't think anybody saw coming because (laughs) there are so many kids who identify as either a boy or a girl and are pressured to like or told the things that they should like are either for boys or girls. You know, I've had students say things like, you're getting the girl color, X, Y, Z, you know, whatever. And my point is, yes, we need more books that have non-binary representation, but because toxic masculinity is so alive and well, we also need these books that break it down in addition to the non-binary representation. We don't have to hate on pink is for boys because there's not non-binary representation you can have both. More. In fact, both and more, please. Mm -hmm. Totally agreed. Like, of course, I want to see, and and like many of us, want to see those inclusive pronouns in books, but whoever's reading out loud can add some in when they're reading. The fact of the matter is, boys are still shamed for liking feminine things, like pink or dolls, so we need books that reinforce the ideas that boys can like whatever they want. You know, it's the same as saying, you know, all lives matter. Well, all lives matter only counts when black lives are are valued in the same way, you know, when toxic masculinity doesn't lead to such pain and agony for men and boys, then maybe then we can say, oh, we're done with that. We need to move on to this. But like also it's again, another binary. There doesn't have to be one or the other. We can have both. And indeed, I have built my whole life around, I can have both. Thank you. (laughs) Here, here. (laughs) Um, Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, So it's really important. And, you know, we do want to make the caveat that you need to remember that no group of people, trans and NB folks included, are a monolith. And there are definitely people who feel like books, like Pink It's for Boys, uh, and the book, uh, except when they don't, which is a very similar format, reinforce the gender binary too much. And that's valid. We're not taking that down. Um, We just also feel that there's a very, very valid 
reason for books like this to exist. And I personally do support the viewpoint that Corey and Lee were talking about above. We need books that break down toxic masculinity and address parents and families who need help moving past these binary forms when they're faced with the children that they didn't expect. That doesn't mean that they love their children less. They just don't know how to deal with some of these things. These are important. These books are important, 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 important stepping stones. Like, and you know, can we also write new books about colors that maybe have more non-binary pronouns in them and representation and are more inclusive? Yes. We need to make space for those books too, but it doesn't make these books bad. They just have a different purpose. If I can interject, I mean, a lot of the issues that I saw playing out IRL in my previous career was that people just didn't know how to talk about it. And that was what made them the most upset. It wasn't really me. It was them having to face their preconceived notions and their childhood trauma around Mm -hmm. gender. So that's also a thing to remember is that, you know, it, it needs to be there. People need it. It will mean the difference for a child to see that. And that's not going to, you know, go away the more representation there is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's room for this and there's room for more. And we have to keep pushing for more. But this is still important. Mm -hmm. They can make lots of paper and print lots of books and just keep on, print more books, everybody. But we don't have to, you know, I agree. You know, we don't need to get rid of pink is for boys just because it isn't as far along as we would like. We, we're going to keep on moving, right? Mm-hmm. And the reality is that most kids are living aware of the gender binary and all that goes together. So books that speak to breaking down toxic masculinity, masculinity and challenging the norms are any way, in any way possible are really necessary. They're completely necessary. And the next thing then is moving on to the level which is specifically talking about books with kids who are gender diverse, gender nonconforming. You know, one that I love is From the Stars in the Sky to the Fish in the Sea, which also, you know, the caveat is you see a magical element involved with the main character being canonically non-binary, gender nonconforming, which... I think can make the child seem, you know, fantastical and not real because they can choose to have wings or a tail or, you know, um, it's a fantastic and beautiful book, but you also, you know, in addition to this one, you need other books that maybe don't have that fantastical, magical element. Yeah. And I'll fire back at you here and uh, challenge that. Do and it. that. It really is a beautiful metaphor. We're working with children's books, so it doesn't have to be a nonfiction. I know you love nonfiction. But the fantastical nature of it is what makes it understandable to children. That that I would get as a child, and I got it as an adult, because the first time I read the book, you know, it it hit me in a way that I did not expect. We were in a bookstore in Montreal at Drawn and Quarterly, Shout out Drawn and Quarterly. Please sponsor us. Please. <laughs> I don't, I'm not even a part of this podcast, but you can sponsor us, please. We love you. Um, and I read this book and it, it just hit, you know, uh, uh, something that I had not experienced before. And I, by the end of the book, I was crying 
in this bookstore. Not the first time, not the last, but it was the reason I didn't understand. I didn't understand why I was crying, which is abnormal. Um, so it was about a year later when I actually, you know, started thinking about, hmm, I've been thinking a lot about this word non-binary. Do I think that that applies to me? But I think what I saw in that book was that it's that fantastical, like you can have both. You can, you can be whatever, you know, you might be a dinosaur one day and you might be a butterfly the next and it's you, it's all still you. It comes down to when you go home, there will still be someone who loves you. In this case, it's my fabulous wife, but you know, there is going to be somebody who will love you no matter what, you know, you're presenting that day. And I think that that's why, oh, that book got me. It really did. Still does to this day. And it's so important to be seen like that on multiple levels, like, you know, in picture characters. And then again, in books with, that you read about like puberty, there's uh, The Care and Keeping of You, which is a fabulous book. It works, but it is for girls <laughs> and it is for cis gender conforming girls only. And it really does put kids in a box and it's not for every single kid. The Everybody book, which is a new book that just came out, is LGBTQ and trans inclusive. And it's going to help a lot of kids feel so much more seen. It's so important. Um, and this ex idea uh, immediately to me extends to potty training books too, even from the earliest ages. They don't have to be the potty training book for boys or the potty training book for girls like you as a parent you can seek out books that are much more neutral and don't place kids into this rigid pink or blue potty <laughs> right out of the gate like it's just not necessary there's no reason for it and actually at some point I am going to do a feature on more neutral potty training books because I think it's so important uh funny story about that I have two girls and I'm a cisgendered woman. And so when we were potty training my first daughter, uh, I went to the store to buy like pull-up training diapers and they had a blue box with a boy on it for boys, it said, and then a pink box and it said for girls. And the blue box came with like this cool backpack and I was, you know, I'm taking the boxes down and I'm reading the whole thing. I'm like, why is this blue one for boys? I want the cool backpack for my kid and, <laughs> and you know I'm like talking to the people and I'm like so so like are they made differently like how does that I, I didn't know apparently there's no difference there's no difference people just one is blue and one is pink and you can get the blue one with the backpack I'm just saying so they're exactly the same there is no reason for it to be color-coded and socially constructed gendering but I digress so books uh we need some more books that feature non-binary identities in children's literature. And one of them that already exists is called Peanut Goes for the Gold, which is important because it's own voices and it's mainstream and it got a really big marketing budget. So it's getting out in front of kids where it will be seen. Um, the book, They, She, He, Me, Free to Be, Neither, It Feels Good to Be Yourself, when Aiden becomes a brother, which we all really loved that one for so many reasons. But one of the main reasons is that in that book, Aiden's, Aiden is trans and 
is that he in the story can envision what his um, soon-to-be sibling might encounter because of what he himself encountered while figuring out that he is a boy. And his transition was just the preamble for the actual plot line of his family gaining a child and a, uh, a gender neutral parenting of that new baby. So that one is also an own voices book, which is very nice. I love that book so much. It's just absolutely beautiful. I wanted to just talk a little bit more about some historical background here too. Uh, just a little bit about colonialism and its effect on indigenous cultures um, and how they have cho uh, changed our views on gender. Yeah, just like a light, fluffy topic. Just a don't, touch. Don't, don't worry. Uh, <laughs> and so historically and all throughout history and, you know, globally, third gender identities have existed all over the world. For example, there's two-spirit, which is an indigenous term, um, First Nations terminology, and some tribes have more specific terms that they use instead of two-spirit, but two-spirit really started to be used um, around the 1990s. Muxes in Mexico. In India, there's Hydra. Thailand has Katui. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I tried. I looked. I looked up a def uh, pronunciation. And then indigenous Hawaiians also have a term um, called mahu, which is just to name, name a couple. Yeah, we've always been here. Like, this is not new. <laughs> Why did we not learn about it? Why does this not come up in school? That's because who writes the history, right? This is something that history majors and anyone who's interested in history always figures out, is that the important things, the things that people were saying that were not the, uh, you know, colonial Christian value, they were just erased either by, you know, some submissive kind of policies or just outright getting rid of the people so that mm -hmm. there was no one to speak that tale. But, you know, it forced the binary into what it is today. So a lot of cultures are just starting to question, you know, what they've been fed from those very powerful, right, colonial, that was like governmental policy, and then Christianity, that's religion. Those are two very powerful forces, you know, especially when they are enacted in a violent manner. So when I get to read books like Ho'onani Hula Warrior, uh, which is about um, a Hawaiian human, little Hawaiian human, about a, a little Ho'onani. It's easiest to use names. The trick I learned, just call me Lee. You don't have to worry about the pronouns. It's, it's about uh, how Ho'onani uh, identifies as Mahu and her connection with traditional indigenous gender identity and feeling in between. And what's so fantastic is that not only is, you know, this a book, it also is, prior to the book, it was a documentary. Um, and not only does Ho'onani, you know, get surrounded by by people who accept her but also her teacher is transgender and native hawaiian indigenous and there's just you know an accessibility that you too can have a teacher who will listen to you you too can you know ho'onani's challenges you know performing and what kid doesn't have that experience of being forced to be in the front of class or being called on to read 
a part of the book and you have to think it through in your head for like five minutes while you're like <gasps> on tender hooks that you're going to get called on. So it's just these, these challenges are just part of Ho'onani's life, right? And, and ultimately she is completely accepted and celebrated for being exactly who she is. And the acceptance and normalization of kids like Ho'onani, which was such a great book, is such, so important to retell because her teacher, Kumuhina, is working within a framework of native traditional cultural values and creating safe space for all students to be who they are and using their traditional language around gender identity. So Ho'onani doesn't have to feel othered because it's built right into what is taught in their school. Yes, exactly. So when we work with the knowledge of, you know, as another example, two-spirit Indigenous identities, when we work that into our children's education, we are rebuilding a history of the existence of an expansive gender spectrum that has been erased and eroded over time. It's, it's actually a revolutionary act of recognition and reclamation to teach this to our children and rebuild that history. And even talking about other identities that are incredibly common, but you know, maybe never mentioned in books, there's intersex folks. So if we're talking about binary and gender essentialism, which is a big word, but basically means you got to put people in one box or the other, because obviously people are only born with male or female genitalia, and that's really all that matters. Um, that's a very ironic statement. Please don't take me seriously. <laughs> <laughs> we know. Just think about somebody coming into the podcast at that moment. Mm -mm. So that's not even it. You know, with chromosomal differences, there are plenty of folks who actually are intersex, right? Like, if you're going by gender essentialism and like, oh, nature is one way, well, just take a look at the animal kingdom because you're going to find out that seahorses, male seahorses have babies. They just pop them up. It's terrifying. Go watch a video. <laughs> There's finally a new book called My Maddie, and it's about an intersex parent. It's finally a step beyond, you know, in the same way we were talking about, it's important to have books, you know, like Uncle Bobby's Wedding that talks about same-sex couples and parents, but it's a huge deal to have an intersex protagonist treated thoughtfully in a children's book because it's actually estimated that like one to two people per 100 people are born intersex. It's incredibly common and it's just something that is often just chucked under the rug. Exactly, and because being intersex is naturally occurring, you know, it's a naturally occurring variation in humans. It isn't, you know, medically an issue, even though in the past, and it's still continuing today, there have been medical interventions like surgeries or hormone therapy um, on children, even though they're not usually medically necessary. Being intersex is way more common than most people realize. The surgeries that are sometimes performed are sort of, you know, to quote unquote, correct the genitalia. Th this can be an entire separate discussion, but the reason for bringing this up is to point out that none of this is ever talked about in books, but to have an intersex parent or be an intersex human or have an intersex family member is a lived experience that so many people have that I have personally never seen discussed in a book except for My Maddie, which is by Imagination Press, who I love very much. 
You do. And <laughs> I do. But you do, for sure. So there's all this variation in ways to be a normal human who lives in a wonderful body and expresses gender in so many different ways. We are all a rainbow of humans with different bodies and experiences, and all of those experiences need at some point to be reflected back on the pages of books for kids, not only to show kids that their own thoughts and feelings and identities matter, but also to not do this massive disservice to the next generation by denying them the knowledge that people exist outside of the cisgender binary. And to add, even within accepted norms, there are things that we need to be actively working to fix. Like, for example, young children, especially girls, need to be taught that their looks are not the most important thing about themselves. By complementing substance or intangible qualities about them, both boys and girls learn that not just physical appearance matters. And books can be an excellent tool to help instill this message, give them books about accomplishing things, like a box of text, which Kelly recently lent me for example, which has a lots of building, rivalry, competition, and ultimately cooperation. But you aren't used to seeing storylines like that with girls as the central characters. And one more thing to add, which is kind of re related. Another thing that bugs me is when people compliment a child for being smart, like they were already smart and they will always be smart because they were smart. Like, like being pretty is being pretty and smart and smart. It really should be more about the growth and, and how hard they worked as opposed to them being something and not being it. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I totally, totally agree. I'll jump in with nice. Nice yeah, means nothing. <laughs> it means absolutely nothing. Compassionate. You know, just look at a dictionary or, you know, even better, you know, I even open a book, thesaurus.com. Look up some other words. There's lots of words for things that actually describe what you're looking for in that child's behavior. Indeed. So true. Get, let's get creative here. But on the topic of box attacks. Right. I'm obsessed with that book. <laughs> so good. Doesn't like a box fort. Nobody I want to meet. Forts are obviously awesome. Once for Corey's birthday party, the dress code was perfect because we invited everyone to come in their pajamas and we turned our living room into a giant pillow fort for all of our guests. Amazing. That was that really so great. <laughs> it was super fun to drink wine in a fort um, <laughs> because we were all adults. Uh, <laughs> so turning away from previous birthday parties, um, once I also did have a Bigfoot themed birthday party because um, no I like a strong theme. But so we, we all have, you know, positive and negative experiences of gender. And especially when we're young, we try out different gender performances to sort of help figure out what feels right for our personal expression, you know, the clothes we wear, the length of our hair, if we wear any jewelry, you know, and by supporting um, students and family members and our own children and allowing them the freedom to understand this big an emotional complicated topic is so so important and uh before i add that i just want to say that when river turned one our theme for her birthday was presidential campaign because everybody was having like pink balloons that's not a theme president i mean I had little buttons made i should send you i have some anyways but <laughs> uh, it was really good um 
utilizing children's literature uh, that defies gender stereotypes as a regular part of the classroom's group and independent reading time assists teachers in introducing gender-free ideas about how people can be. But there is a lot more to this. It needs to be part of the assignments you give, the way you set up your play-based classroom to encourage exper experimentation beyond the binary, the kinds of arts that you're doing, etc. Yeah, working this stuff into the school and home culture you create is part of having the resources and part living it. You know, anti-racist work is the same way. You have to take the knowledge and then embody it in your everyday life. You know, the friends you surround yourself with, the art on the walls, the music you listen to, what you, you know, repost online. It's a lifestyle. It's definitely not a one and done. You know, buy the books, throw them on the shelf and wash your hands of it. Uh, you gotta keep it up. It's not gonna just happen. It's yeah. that's that's why we are where we are. It just doesn't happen. If it had, we would not be dealing with these issues that we are today. Yeah, it's a continuous conscious act that you have to keep working at. It's never over. However, earlier in the episode, and actually also in an earlier episode of the podcast, we have talked about how you can change the language used in books for very young kids, like pronouns, for example. But what we can't change are the illustrations or the over overall storyline. If children don't see themselves represented, they're going to feel boxed in and they're going to feel boxed in by what they're supposed to do or what they're supposed to look like. And I really think in the last few years, we've actually moved farther away from extremely prominent stereotypes in picture books, but they're in no way gone or even become balanced in any way. And of course, you know, there are kids who enjoy the quote unquote stereotypical clothing, the gender expression, the activities that are societally aligned with the sex assigned at birth. But this issue is tangentially related to the publishing industry as a whole because if there's unequal representation, that's the underlying massive issue. We can't be what we can't see, and kids need those reinforcements in books and in all the media that they're not you know, weird for liking certain things because books have this beautiful power to normalize. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and of course, to follow up um, discussion and journaling and reflection after you've read those books. There's so many ways you can be fighting these harmful ideas. Lee, do you have any final thoughts you want to share with us today? Yeah, I mean, I again want to say that I'm so happy to be a part and be able to, you know, share my story. I haven't really talked about this. This is probably the most public way I've talked about this since it uh, happened. And that is really big for me. I feel like I'm in a very different place in my life and able to, you know, see it much more clearly. And hopefully, you know, whoever listens to this, if you are having the same kinds of issues that I was, you are going to be okay. It may feel like it's the last, last thing that you're ever going to do. And that when you leave that job, there's, there's going to be nothing for you. And, you know, you can't imagine life without whatever you're doing. There's, there's so many possibilities out there. You are resilient. You are powerful and not because of what you can do, just because who you are in the same way that we teach these children that like their value is intrinsic. It is just, being a person on this earth 
you have value. You don't have to do anything to prove it. You don't have to do anything to deserve it. You are that same thing. And I think that just giving the love and compassion that, you know, you either give to the children in your life or to other people in your life, like show that same compassion towards yourself and you'll be a lot better off. It's not easy, but give it a try. Whew, now I have to follow that up. <laughs> um, <laughs> we have that's talked t-shirt for, quote stuff, <laughs> right? That's, that's like a whole bodysuit of <laughs> quotes right there. <laughs> uh, so we've already gone on like way longer than we normally do because we have so many good thoughts. Um, but I really appreciate you all, you know, hopping down this rabbit hole with me because I just love talking about all this stuff. And I guess my biggest piece of advice for folks is that having these conversations with kids really work. They can be super low key, like asking, you know, what they think of a cartoon or a photo in a magazine. Just really, these conversations open up to make sure that kids know it's okay to like whatever they like and can also teach them not to shame or police anybody else's actions. And that's really just so crucial. Yeah. And the more that you have these conversations, the less your kid's going to look at you like, why are you talking to me about this? If you so just true. make it a, a normal part, but if you do it weird, if you're, you know, if you're feeling like you got to keep practicing, you got to get comfortable and then you can expect, hopefully, your child will want to talk to you. I've worked with a lot of older children, which is why I'm saying these things. Yes. <laughs> so this is like double our normal episode. <laughs> but we always take on huge topics. We do this every single time. And there is no way for us to cover this entire topic, even in this double-sized episode that we're putting out this time. But we do have some very specific ways that we want to expand on this topic in future episodes and talk about the history of how these gender stereotypes are built into children's literature, like fairy tales. That's actually a future episode that we want to oh, get yeah. into. <laughs> um, and uh, Lee, Lee wants to come back on for that one, I know. Please um, have me back. Thank you. <laughs> Um, I guarantee that one will be twice as silly too. Um, <laughs> we're working on those episodes right now already and we can't wait to share them with you. And yes. thank you. Honestly, we could have an entire, uh, several podcast episodes about just toxic masculinity, which yes. I think we could all just yell about all day. Well, so <laughs> thank you for listening in and thank you Lee for coming in and sharing your voice and your thoughts and your experiences with us. And we are looking forward to having you back again soon. We want to thank you, our listeners, for joining us in our first discussion about gender norms in children's literature here on the Picture Books to Gang podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Picture Books to Gang and be sure to subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to drop us a note and let us know, what are you reading? <laughs>